Hello, and welcome to Marlboro Learning Together at a Distance, conversations about our coronavirus experience. I'm your host, Dr. Katherine Atwell, Dean of Student Research at Marlboro and a member of the History Department. This pod is a production of the Sherry and Ed Glazer Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. We created this podcast as an opportunity for all of us in the Marlboro community to reflect on and share what we've been doing, feeling, seeing, enjoying, and missing while we've been at home quarantining to prevent the spread of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Marlboro's community is strong and smart and distinctive and diverse. So in each episode, we'll hear from different members of the Marlboro community, including current students, teachers, staff, school leaders, alums, parents, trustees, and more. They'll share stories about how they're coping and sometimes not coping so well with the pandemic. And in the process, we'll learn about some of the creative ways that Marlboro teachers and students are learning together at a distance. The goal of this pod is to connect our community while also recording for future generations some oral history about our experiences right now. We're living through an unprecedented time, at least for most of us, a time with the potential to profoundly reshape our world, our country, our city, and our school. COVID-19 is bringing out the best and at times the worst in humanity. Luckily, at Marlboro, we have the resources, and that includes each and every one of us to be leaders in this new educational environment and to weather this pandemic, coming out the other end stronger and more full of laughter and life than before. So let's get started with this episode. Today, it's my privilege to be speaking with five young women, some of whom are current students and one who is a recent alum who have been participating in the fight against racial injustice. Several of them have been also attending Black Lives Matter protests here in Los Angeles in the midst of the ongoing pandemic. We're going to hear their stories today. And so I'd like each of them to introduce themselves to you now. My name is Sophia, and I am a rising junior. My name is Bria, and I am a rising senior. My name is Candace, and I am also a rising senior. My name is Ava, and I am also a rising senior. My name is Katie, and I graduated in the class of 2020. Wonderful. Thank you all for being here. It's uh, such a delight to have the opportunity to speak to you, even if it is through a Zoom screen and not uh, in person. So today, I'd like to ask you some questions about the experiences with the protests to start there. And first of all, could those of you who attended the protests tell me what that experience was like? So what did you see and what did you experience? For me, I went into it expecting to feel as if I was in a big community and everyone was fighting for the same thing. And I did get that feeling, but it turned out to be so much more powerful than I expected. It was really amazing to see everyone really fighting for the same thing and all different people coming together. It was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. Um, and then I would just like to say, like, I agree with Sophia, and I would just like to say, like, going into the first protest, um, the way the news portrayed these protests were in a very, like, violent way. They made it seem like everything was intending to be violent. So inherently, I was a little worried, you know, but I also knew that the intentions of all of these people were completely great. And like, it was just the police's 
you know, it's it was a new thing that was happening. So the police had to use force and it was a little scary. But I will say that noticing the evolution of all the protests, I would say within a week, how there was so much police and then none at the end just shows how peaceful it was and how much of it just felt like you were in a like an amazing community, a diverse community that all wanted the same thing. And I would say everyone there was just so supportive of each other, even if you didn't know anyone. So it was a really great experience overall. I think these have been, the past month has been probably my favorite protests I've ever been to. They are, I don't know, there's something about them, these marches that I feel like you can really sense a shift in communities. They're finally like paying attention to things that they have never paid attention to before. And I just think that like, that's really clear in these protests. As a white ally, I feel like a lot of, people I know and myself included were there for a very specific purpose which was to like whatever get in front and whatever that we needed to do and be there to protect the uh, people of color who were protesting and I think that that was like a very powerful thing for a lot of people. I would agree that the reason the Black Lives Matter protests were so impactful and felt different is because it was all so genuine it was all so down to earth whereas other protests are maybe not as inclusive. This was equality for everyone. It was because there's every time you go, it's not just Black, it's Black trans lives. So I felt like that type of community being so inclusive made it so much more impactful. Yeah, um, adding on, just like being a Black person at these protests, like it was so amazing to see hundreds and hundreds of like white people or Asian people or like just a bunch of different um, races and a bunch of different ethnicities, like all there wanting the same thing. And all, I just felt like, I mean, it felt extremely, I felt supported being there by everyone there. And that was something that was truly amazing to me. Something that also doesn't get a ton of attention is how many people were there, like handing out waters, handing out hand sanitizer, like snacks, like they were, (laughs) there was so much like food, water, like resources at every single intersection at every single block it was just it was incredible to see um everyone coming together and helping each other out and like people were handing out flowers as well like that was really cute and um I mean it was just it was amazing it was amazing and I went the first time and I just knew that like I did not want to stop going like it was incredible to be surrounded by all of that so and Katie how many times have you gone out to protest do you think at least 10, I would say more, um, because even when they were getting like, you know, like a little bit smaller, there were still protests that just had like speakers and art, um, like Sophia and I were at one just like making signs together. I want to say we went to 12. I could be wrong. Yeah, 12. I feel like it could be around that. It was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah, I went to like seven to 10, I think, somewhere around that. That's like the ballpark range. Yeah. Thanks, Candice. And Ava? Oh, well, I was going to say something I loved about these protests um, that I thought was really different from others, especially the Jackie Lisi one down in on Wednesdays, was that they were the most informative protests I've ever been to. And it felt like, like you said, there were speakers. And I think that these protests allowed for people who normally don't have these conversations and who often like shy away from talking about their whiteness or racial like privilege or whatever. These, sorry, it's really loud outside. These protests kind of pushed those conversations to the forefront and it made it really hard to avoid having those conversations, which I think was kind of incredible to see in like communities where people normally don't talk about those things. 
And then I would also say too, like one thing I noticed was we didn't really see that many kids our age there, like teenage kids there. There were, it was mostly adults, I would say. So also to be, I guess, like models for our generation to get kids our age to notice that like it's totally cool and like it's really important for us to be out there because it's our generation that's going to be growing up with this and needing to get rid of racism and stuff. So I would say that it was also really an important thing to get other people to notice that, yeah, we all just because you're a teenager and not an adult, or if you can't vote yet, you can still be doing things to help this out because it is a huge issue that we're going to need everyone's help with, you know? So I would say that it was a really, I felt really like glad that I could influence my other friends to do stuff also, even if they couldn't attend protests, they would say, oh, I couldn't go, but what could I do? They would reach out. And I thought that was really great because you're getting people you're getting more and more people involved than before when it was when nothing was going on. So it was really important for that too. Well, Candace, I'm glad you brought up the issue of, of young people becoming involved in the protests and that it was surprising to you how relatively few there were. Um, what did you all tell your parents about why you wanted to participate and what did they say to you in return? I went with my mom and my brother to the first one. My mom's like, She's, 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 I'm active because she was like, that's how I started. So she was all for it. And I mean, they were kind of freaked out about Corona, but like, they were just like, wear a mask and social distance. And I was like, okay. And like, I just have to like shower when I get home, but they were super supportive. And I think that like, it allowed us to bring those conversations to the dinner table, like nightly. And I think that ever since these protests have started, like the amount of conversations we've had about like privilege and whatever, and like conversations I've had with my dad, who is a total liberal, but like sometimes has trouble like addressing his white male privilege. So like, that's like something that these protests have allowed us to do as a family, which is great. For me, I really just said, I'm going to go protest. And they said, okay, they were very supportive about it. I think they know they can't really fight it because that would sound bad. Um, <laughs> but they were super supportive and they were supportive of me risking getting any parking tickets. It was all just parking illegally at every protest. They said they wouldn't be upset. So my parents handled it really well. And just like Ava, we just, I just had to shower. That was my one big rule, but it did definitely open up a lot of conversation about what I was seeing and experiencing and feeling while being there. Like Sophia, the first protest at Pan Pacific, I believe, which is where a lot of, I think that was the first day of like looting and stuff. My parents saw all that. And like I said, the news at first started to portray this as something not great, you know? And so my parents watching the news, hearing from other people, they were a little iffy and they were like, I don't know, because, you know, that's what like news, some news channels are biased and they're going to show you something that may not be true. So I was uncomfortable being at home and not doing anything like it, it almost felt like, why am I not helping? It, it was a, I, I couldn't explain this feeling, but when you're not there doing something about something so that like needs all hands on deck it's so difficult to just sit and watch it so I like Sophia just insisted like I need to do this for me like I need to do this for others I need to be there to help out as much as I can and I hope that's okay with you and like they like Ava and Sophia they just wanted me to be careful with 
all of the corona stuff, but soon they noticed that it became peace, more peaceful and more peaceful and more peaceful until it was just, you know, like completely peaceful. So, yeah. Yeah. So the first few they didn't know about, but um, when I came home from one of them, I was telling them like, oh, this friend went, this friend went, they said, it's like so cool. They said, it's like really empowering and blah, blah, blah. And then they were kind of like, oh, like, I guess you can go tomorrow. And then I was like, thanks. But like, it was like my third one or something. So for me, uh, it wasn't as much, you know, support, but they did see that it was something that I was going to do, whether they said yes or no. Why do you think that the media was so quick to want to latch on to those images of violence uh, when so much of what was happening in the streets was the antithesis of that? I would say that a lot of news, I'd say the the history of news in general is a lot of it has to do with showing stuff that people don't want to see, stuff that's violent, stuff that's not you know, a lot, they don't show as much good. And I think that this topic for a lot of people, especially biased news channels, is hard to accept when you aren't directly being affected by this. So I think a lot of news channels, I just didn't think they wanted to fully accept what was happening, except that it wasn't what it seems. Because I think just people were very, like you said, quick to judge. They just wanted all this to stop because they don't want to face this issue. And I think it was just kind of an immature way to to look at it. But I'm also really glad that they evolved and were able to actually accept that most, if not all, was completely peaceful. And it was just people misjudging and blowing it out of proportion, misinterpreting the whole message of it. What precautions did you take for your own safety and the safety of others with regard to COVID? I heard a couple of you talk about taking a shower, but what about while you were there? Was it possible to social distance effectively or did that, you know, the power of the experience and the moment and the need to be and then the, the sheer volume or number of people who were there kind of overtake that concern? I think that initially, I like the first one in Pan Pacific, I was like on the sidelines and I was nervous, but I think that like, as you go to more, you realize like, it's really hard. I think wearing a mask is kind of the extent of it, which I hate to admit that, but I think it is because like when you're with all of these people and you're all like yelling and you're all feeling super like united for this one cause, I feel like all of the other things that are going on in the world kind of I don't know, maybe that's wrong of me to say, but that's kind of how I've been feeling and sensing at these protests. And that people like, no one's like sharing waters or like hugging, but like you are like shoulder to shoulder with people, which is something kind of, that's kind of unavoidable at these things. I would agree. It was really just the mask. Like Katie was talking about people handing out food and water. There were also people with spray hand sanitizer that you would just put your hands out and they would spray you. There was less touching than I expected. We were able to have some space around you, but definitely not a six foot distance. But the, I'd say the most I thought about COVID during the protests while I was there had nothing to do with the germs and was just how many more people would be there. If Because I we were there marching with thousands of people and it was so empowering, but I couldn't even imagine how many people would be there had COVID not been a factor. And I thought that after, because one, I remember one protest was 
after I heard it was like 20,000 people, I was like, whoa, this is like, like a soccer game or something. Like, I thought that the next day we would hear like, oh, more COVID cases, this and that, like, there's a huge spike now. But there really wasn't that much. And we didn't really hear much of it. And that's what made us all okay with it. And we all were also very aware of like how we were feeling and we didn't overwork ourselves. Some people took breaks because, you know, they took maybe a day off to kind of just, you know, they don't want to expose themselves too much. I know a lot of people too, they did get tested kind of halfway through the protesting just to check in. I got tested afterward. I was just, you know, keeping track of how I was feeling and just making sure, yeah, hand sanitizer, all the stations and just wearing a mask the whole time and pretty much felt really comfortable as they kept going and stuff. And one way in which the pandemic and Black Lives Matter protests intersect is the fact that COVID-19 has disproportionately hurt communities of color with much worse health outcomes. So it's not just police brutality that's a part of institutional racism. Was there ever any discussion of that in speeches you heard during the protests? Any attempt to address it? I heard one speech. It was a very small protest where we were making signs or arts and crafts and there were people speaking. And that was the one speech I think I heard that addressed the just how people of color are disproportionately affected by COVID. And they were telling, they like were talking to the audience saying, look around and look at the race of the people around you and he was talking and he was saying to look around and how he was so appreciative of the white allies but telling us how lucky we were that we were able to be there because we're going to be okay and he was saying that he had so many family members and friends that didn't go because they didn't think they would be able to stay healthy. So what do you hope will come out of the protests in Los Angeles specifically? And, and Bria, I'd also like to bring you into the conversation as well. You were not at the protests, but you know quite a bit about them. Yes, um, I would say that like, I know Ava mentioned to me a few weeks ago that defunding the police was very important. And I that was like my main like hope that would come out of all of this and equality and I guess justice for everyone that has been affected by police brutality, especially, is really important. And I think what I wanted to see come out of this, some of it has, I think there has been change. I think it's been really great to see the impact that protests can have, the amount of petitions and how money has been taken out of certain states for their police fund. And I do think that this is only the beginning, but I also think something that has been so eye-opening and has already been such a large outcome is the education that people are receiving. It's not nearly enough yet. But so many people who have never engaged, which I know Ava talked about this before, who have never engaged in these conversations and have never tried to acknowledge their privilege, I think have really been able to reflect and learn and educate themselves and also listen to other people. Adding on to that, the protesting is truly the beginning of it all. And it's it's amazing to see how much people can learn and how this movement has opened up so many conversations. And like, that's where it's really important because this is going to be talked about hopefully for years to come. But the fact that it's still so prevalent right now is amazing to me. And I was talking to one of my white friends who has 
fairly conservative parents and she was talking about multiple dinner conversations that she's had with them where she's educating her own parents and like advocating for BLM, advocating for defunding of the police and just bringing to attention the systemic racism and inequalities that there are. And it just, it was amazing for me to hear from her um, that she was able to do that because she wouldn't have been able to do that as well like a year ago or like five months ago or something because now like you open Instagram and there's just like 40 different links there's tons of you know like little artsy slide through whatever's um, that you can look at and just immediately learn and I think that's so amazing that people have that opportunity they've had it for like a long time but the fact that it's being spread every single day is truly amazing. For those who don't know what the term defunding the police means, would you like to explain that? So defunding the police, a lot of people think it's just, you know, like kind of hold it with completely taking out the police, um, which is quite extreme. But defunding the police is really just taking out a significant amount of their monetary funds and putting them into other areas like education and healthcare and just underprivileged um, areas of living, like things like that, because the police really do get an absurd amount of money. And for seeming like they seemingly don't need half of the things that they have for what their job is supposed to be. And with that comes you know, ACAB is another term, all cops are bastards. And that just goes to talk about the corrupt system that they're a part of. It's not necessarily saying that every cop is evil thing, but more so that they all work under this corrupt system that needs, (laughs) it needs work. And so the start of that is defunding them as much as possible and putting that money into other areas that could be more helpful in our society. Thanks, Katie, for that explanation. I really appreciate how you delineated the difference between the literal meaning of these slogans and their actual intent. And one other element of defunding the police that I think it's important to mention here is the fact that a lot of police departments have become way more militarized and they've acquired a lot of surplus military grade equipment that sometimes makes police officers look more like soldiers getting ready to deploy to a battlefield than to engage in community policing. And that's unfortunately also partially contributed to the increase in fatal outcomes in policing. And um, a lot of people during the protests were talking about how quickly the National Guard was able to just be there and all like seeing all of these police like in uniform with weapons and everything, how fast that was able to happen. But then with COVID and the cases and the materials that like hospitals needed and like setting up for all of that took significantly longer. And right now, like a lot of places are even like, like running out of money. So that just goes to show right there how disproportionate the money is. Thinking about the meaning of this moment more broadly and how Black Lives Matter has raised awareness throughout the United States, as well as within our Marlboro community about issues of injustice and inequality. Is there anything specifically that you've learned, perhaps that was surprising or unexpected to you, that you've learned from this experience that you didn't know before? I would say coming out of this, I've learned more in a week than I have in maybe a few months or my whole life about this issue and how my privilege has not allowed me to be fully aware of these issues. And I'm guilty of that, but 
I've come to recognize my privilege and use it towards something that can help or, you know, just be an ally to this because it's, although I learned a lot, I still haven't learned nearly as much as I can. And I'm, it's just taught me to be open and to ask questions in order to just be the best ally that I can. For me, I would say before this, I was fairly well-versed on this topic and have done my fair share of educating myself. But what I've learned from this is just how much, especially as a white ally, how much power I hold in just being able to listen. Because I really saw that many of these people that were speaking, whether it was to a crowd or just in the middle of a protest is their voices aren't heard especially by the people in power and many of those are white and just by listening to them they I learned so much just about their experiences about what I can do and just kind of just on a larger scale of if a white person just listens like all you have to do is listen and so much change can happen. And I think it's also, sorry, I think it's also important to note too, a lot of white allies have been guilty of saying, I'm not racist. And it's okay, like, you probably aren't racist, but there's a difference between saying, I'm not racist, and I am anti-racist. Like, I am not for this, versus saying, I'm not racist. Because there's a huge difference in how much you put into each of those things. And so I think that's also important to note that a lot of people like myself have realized and learned because of this and using that anti-racist mindset going forward from here. Actually, before all of this happened, I did a podcast on police brutality for a history project. And I've done like a couple of Like over the past few years at Marlboro, I've done a couple of projects on police brutality specifically. So I think that like I've been pretty educated about the situation, but I've also learned a lot about defunding the police. And I feel like like Ava brought that to my attention a few weeks ago. And I just have learned a lot about that. I feel like the whole movement has also it's shown a lot of contrasts between Like Bria just said, like she's been pretty educated on the topic. Sophia said that as well, like before all of this, but it really starts to draw the question as to what Marlboro is doing to educate everyone, because there are people in my grade, people in grades above, people in grades below who really, you know, Marlboro, I like to think of it as progressive. You know, I had a fantastic experience throughout the years on like you know, some people, but I like to think that I had a really good experience. But some people, a lot of ignorance did start to show through uh, this entire movement. Um, Individuals in my grade surprised me with their level of ignorance. Um, Started like, it's just, it starts to become confusing and raises the question of like, how did we go to the same school? Like, were you learning what I was learning? Were you seeing what I was seeing? and some people weren't and so that really you know it makes you think about what Marlboro yes they've done you know more than maybe a lot of other schools have but it's you know it's not enough when I could list like a way too many people who just don't know enough it's 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 incredible um to see that distinction coming from the same school so I feel like there's a lot more that does need to that needs to come um just adding on to Katie's point um like as a black girl attending a predominantly white school like 
there are so many stereotypes and there are so many expectations just relating to everyday Black issues, even outside of school. There's like so many microaggressions that happen at school that I feel like we can definitely work on and improve. I have to say, I do think that the education we're receiving is not addressing these issues. I think there's a reason. I think there are multiple layers as to what the origin of the ignorance is, but I don't think that the education we're receiving is doing anything to educate us on racial issues. Yeah, well, I totally agree with everything everyone just said, but I think that, um, I think Marlboro likes to hide behind a like progressive mask where like it's an, you know, we're like powerful women and like whatever, like voting and like, they do all that stuff where they like pretend like they're really progressive um, and they pretend like their um, curriculum is super progressive. And I think that that allows for like a, just like a continuation of like microaggressions and just a lot of ignorance in the white students, including myself. And I think like connecting that to like what I've learned during this whole movement in this summer is that I think like, I thought I knew a lot, but I think it was so clear that like, my history classes and my English classes like have like gaping holes in them that I have like been taught by like Instagram and whatever. What kind of changes would you like to see at Marlboro that have been inspired by this particular historical moment that we've been in that you think maybe Marlboro is ready to do now that it wasn't before? Um, I would just say normalizing difficult conversations. And I think because a lot of these topics are difficult to have, and I think that's why a lot of people avoid them. So I think that if we just accept if they are difficult, if we accept that and just move forward and just all agree that we need to talk about it and it's something that everyone needs to be aware of, that I think that would really help because then everyone, then microaggressions don't happen. And then people are more educated on past issues and how it's been apparent this whole time. And even now it's everywhere. So I think that that's one step we could take. Going off of what Candace said too, is being able to deal with the discomfort that comes with having these conversations. I think the school really protects the white students because it is very uncomfortable to say, I may have done something that was insensitive. I may have offended a person of color. It's really hard to admit and accept. However, that's at the cost of the students of color being uncomfortable. So I think that is one place that we need to change. I also think in our curriculum itself, and also an obvious place that we should change the curriculum is history. We hear very little about the other side, even if in my US history class, Yes, it was U.S. history and it was focused there. But when we're learning about Japanese internment, for example, we never learned anything about the Japanese side, whereas we heard why white people did it and what they gained from it. Bria, you're going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to like throw up ideas. I think that Marlboro could also, Marlboro always does ASMs for whatever other type of any other thing except like Black Lives Matter would be super informative and I think very important. We could also do, I know some students were working on like maybe in putting a class in place of something else. Like I think that an ASM or a class would really help the community, especially at Marlboro. Going off both of the things that Bria said, one for the ASMs, it's, we had, I want to say one, maybe two people of color speak this entire year, which is 
concerning. And also, I think the school needs to get to the point where it's not, oh, yay, we have a person of color, like this is an accomplishment. And also think like Bria was saying, there should be more classes to address racism and race in general, but all of the classes at school that do address race are all electives. So the only people that take them are the people that are already interested and already care when it needs to go beyond that. I also think just like how Sophia said, how um, sometimes it happens once and then maybe you bring in a person of color to speak at the school and it happens once and they're like, oh, we did it. Like, it's fine. I think that a lot of people get this issue twisted because they think, oh, I posted one thing and I, I did this one thing and that's my part. I did it. It's, and then they, they go back to their old mindsets. And I think it's, that's something that we need to reiterate that isn't, that shouldn't be happening. It should be a consistent mindset in everyone's heads that until there's proper change and monumental change for that matter, everyone needs to be doing their part consistently or else it's nothing's going to come of this. I also think that Marlboro needs to start holding students and administrators accountable in a way that they like haven't before and like putting people over profit or whatever. Like I think that they highlight, like they, they protect like the wealthy rich girls when they say the n-word and ignore or have the like have a person of color explain why it was hurtful to them which I just think is like just allows for that behavior to continue in holding people accountable I think teachers should be role models and with the new Instagram account Dear Marlboro so many issues have really been shown so many experiences have been told and I think it's you I read one the other day saying that a girl was replacing the n-word with Nutella in a book and the teacher said which is already insensitive in itself but the teacher who should be educating said no don't do that as a white say the actual word as a white person it's our job to like reclaim the word and make it like not a bad thing which is I don't know when that happened I don't know what year that was but I think that just shows what is being taught in the school and what even if it was old it's take Mary Caswell, she is known to be racist. And that is kind of what the school is built on. So I think it's really hard for us to move away from that. I think the whole Dear Marlboro account is an incredible step forward, I think. I wish it could have been something, you know, a long time ago, but it's here now. And I think that's great. And I also think that it puts Marlboro in a position where there's no excuse now to not do anything because maybe before this account, like, oh, like we don't see racism, like we're progressive, blah, 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 blah. This account is living proof of that racism, of people of color's experiences of injustice and inequality at this school. And so I feel like after this account, there's just no excuse to not take steps forward, to not change the curriculum, add different classes, bring in speakers of color, because I really didn't have, I mean, no one has the same experience, but I honestly didn't feel like I put up with as much racism towards me as other people of color did. So reading Dear Marlboro, seeing people's stories, like it's, it has been eye-opening for me too. Even though I am like a Black girl, I a lot of the times didn't feel discriminated against or unfairly treated because of the color of my skin. But reading other people's stories, it's there's no denying that there is racism at Marlboro and we need to take steps forward to diminish it. 
What would you like your peers at Marlboro to know right now about the Black Lives Matter movement and the fight for racial justice as they relate to both our country nationally and our own little microcosm of Marlboro? What do you think they really need to hear? It's important that they know that this isn't temporary. It's not a temporary issue and it's not only, it doesn't only matter while it's trendy. I think you'll already see the people, the amount people are posting has already died down from three weeks ago because people are talking about it less. The protests aren't happening as much. The news isn't addressing it less. It's no longer trendy. So I think it's important to instill the idea that this is a constant fight. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's not trendy at all. I feel like it's real life. It is real life. And it's everyone's daily experiences, especially at Marlboro. I feel like they're, dear Marlboro, like just everyone's experience is different. And I feel like this is real life. And I hope that they're really genuine and they actually care about the situation. Ava? I think the first thing is just directed towards me, white peers, whatever, is that like as allies, you're going to screw up, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to say things that like are incorrect and you need to just be comfortable with getting uncomfortable and leaning into this movement because we've never had to talk about our whiteness. And I think that ident- like talking about our whiteness is a super like powerful and important step forward in understanding how you benefit from systemic racism. Um, and so I think that that's a very important thing that like white students, including myself, should be doing every day. I also think that like, yeah, like what Sophie and Bria said that like real activism is is on the streets, but that is also, that is like, what is Ken, oh, Kenderson? I, I don't remember those as quote, but real activism is, boring and gritty and at home and dull and not exciting and not social and like you have to get ready for the long haul and that long haul is going to be hard and you're going to be alone a lot of it and you just have to be ready for that and that's a part of like what you have to do as an ally. Candace, Just simply just be open to stuff. Be open to anything because it's okay to change your opinion and it's okay to be uncomfortable like Ava said and it's okay to ask questions as a white person. It's okay to feel all of those things. So definitely to anyone who doesn't know much about it, just be open to anything that a person of color tells you about this issue or an opinion they have or yeah, just any of that stuff. It's important to just be open as much as possible. It's also just, it's extremely important to recognize that there can't be change when the people who aren't being oppressed don't care as much about those who are. They need to be just as loud, just as caring, just as passionate about this movement as people of color, as Black people, because otherwise, I mean, we are the minority. We can't do this, like, it can't be done alone. It needs to be something that everyone wants to change, that the oppressors want to change. And educating yourself really is the first step. And it's extremely important to hear each other's voices and to figure out what your voice is and to then spread awareness about all of it. Because these conversations that we're having like at home with each other, like those are extremely important, although they may seem small, because conversations are how we grow, how we learn, how we accept new ideas. And really, really, it is important to have a voice and to educate yourself on how to use it. Going off of what Katie said, too, it is not just an issue for Black people to handle. 
for myself as a multiracial, the white passing person, I felt like I was a white ally, but still aware of things that people of color face because it's in my family. However, it took me messing up a few times before I realized how I can act as a white ally and how powerful my voice can be and how powerful me listening can be. And even at a protest, how powerful my appearance can be just standing in front of Katie and I were standing in front of cops and I I stood right in between Katie and a cop and we just stood there. And that's when I realized I really need to use my safety for something bigger than saving myself. Katie, how did you feel in that moment that Sophia is describing? I mean, it was amazing to see to know that I had someone who would do that for me, one, but also I was at these protests documenting, taking photography pictures, and I got like a few of that. And it's just such a powerful image that I do plan on sharing more, but it felt good to know that I had someone who could do that. But there was also a part of me that was jealous that I couldn't do that because of just based off the color of my skin. I could not do that and I would be in much more trouble doing that or I would be seen as a threat doing that just based off the color of my skin. So that definitely was a moment that I will never forget. But yeah, it was it was amazing. Also with this moment, it was after this, that night I received a text from Katie and it was thanking me for being an ally. It was so sweet to read and I was so appreciative, but it was insane saying to me to think that I had to be thanked for just being not a racist person. It was so hard to wrap my head around the fact that that me supporting her stood out to her because that means that's not something she's used to. Where do you hope Marlboro will be in 20 or 30 years with regard to issues of equity, justice, and social responsibility? Where should Marlboro fit into the landscape of Los Angeles And what do you hope students will be learning? I just hope that all the things that we suggested are implemented in some way. And I also hope that no more questionable things happen in terms of race. And I hope that, yeah, there's not, there shouldn't be anything shocking or in terms of racism happening to people like it has been, like microaggressions and stuff like that. I know it won't be perfect in that amount of time because look at how far we've come from slavery and it's still a mess. But I do think that our school is very aware and they are going to work on a lot of things, I hope, because of our students' voices. So yeah, I hope that happens. I hope that Marlboro is more diverse in terms of students and faculty. I really hope that Marlboro gets a class of some sort or multiple ASMs about the situation. I really hope that Marlboro just is way more inclusive to the African-American community. You're absolutely right. I completely agree that we can do better for the African-American community and really for all people of color and people with diverse backgrounds and experiences at Marlboro. For example, we have fewer Latinx students and teachers and fewer Asian students and teachers than exist proportionally in Los Angeles's population at large. So that's certainly an area to work on. And, you know, I hope Marlboro continues to work to diversify both its student body and its faculty for sure. I agree. I took Latinx literature my first semester senior year. 
And that class, it was astounding how much we had to learn. And I do not think that any of that should have been learned my senior year of high school. I think I think it's absurd how much history or history classes, you know, skip over or um, just don't bring light to. And I really hope that Marlboro can loosen up a bit with how they've been doing things for a hundred years or whatever, and see that classes like that need to be brought in at an earlier age for all students. Yeah, they shouldn't just be something that you can take as an elective your senior year. I agree with everything that's been said. I think it's so unfortunate and troubling that our one Asian teacher that was capable of teaching Asian literature, when she left, that class left too, and then got replaced with Latinx, which is really great, but it shouldn't be a handoff. I would hope we can get to the point where we can have both and we can have African-American lit and so many gendered sexuality and Jewish American and everything have. I also just hope that accountability is something that students are being held accountable, teachers are being held accountable by each other. Well, thank you so much for a really important conversation and something that is uh, really profoundly going to affect and already is affecting our school uh, as well as our country and beyond. So thank you again to each of you for joining. And I hope this won't be the last time we speak. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for this installment of Marlboro Together at a Distance. I'm Dr. Atwell, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time to hear more about how our Marlboro community is living and learning through the coronavirus experience. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or suggest someone to be interviewed, please email me at katherine.atwell at marlboro.org. This show is a production of the Sherry and Ed Glazer Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Our producer and the composer of our theme song is the amazing Eric Weza. Thanks so much, Eric, for all of your hard work on this and all projects in the CEI. Thanks also to Regina Rosie Mitchell, the director of the CEI, and of course, Dr. Sands and the rest of Marlboro's incredible administrative team for supporting us all as we learn together at a distance. See you next time.